You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Today's Bible reading comes in two parts. The first part is from Exodus 5, 22 to 6, 8. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with an uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. The next part of today's reading comes from Exodus 7, verses 1 to 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you. And your brother Aaron is to tell the Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Uh, Brothers and sisters, uh, please pray with me as we come to God's word together. Let's pray. Uh, Our gracious Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. Uh, We pray that you would do just that today. Help me to uh, unpack your word faithfully and clearly. Uh, Give us all hearts and minds that are ready to receive your word, uh, to trust it uh, and to be changed by it uh, for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I I wonder what you'd say if I asked you, do you really know me? Some of you might say, well, I don't know you at all. You know, this is the first time I'm seeing you on the screen right now. Others might say, well, I guess I know who you are, but because, uh, not because I'm particularly famous, but just because someone told you once that Aaron Boyd's one of the pastors at Darabin Prezi Church. Uh, others might say, well, I know some stuff about you. you know, we've spoken a few times, or you've heard me speak a few times, uh, and so you've picked up some things about me, maybe where I grew up, or, or that I like to drink coffee, or which football team I barrack for. I reckon if you ask Gabby, though, do you know Aaron, she'd probably say, know him? Of course I know Aaron. 
Right? Knowing Aaron has transformed my life for better and for worse. I think mostly for better. You know, you can ask her. My point I'm making, the point I'm making rather, is that there are different degrees of knowing people. And the deepest level of knowing someone is knowing them in such a way that they actually start to change you, to impact you. They start to transform your life. And of course, the more important question is not whether you really know me, but whether you really know the Lord. This section of Exodus that we're looking at today is all about knowing the Lord. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, you might want to flick back to that. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, Pharaoh said, and I will not let Israel go. And then in today's passage, in Exodus 6, verse 7, uh, God promises the Israelites, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Uh, At the end of today's passage, in Exodus 7, verse 5, God says, uh, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Right? This section of Exodus is all about knowing the Lord. And just as there are different degrees of knowing a person like me, there are different degrees of knowing the Lord. You might say, well, I don't know the Lord at all. I've never heard of him. You might say, I know who the Lord is. And that I've got a sense that the Lord is the God that Christians worship or follow or trust in. You might say, I know some stuff about the Lord, maybe lots of stuff. You know, I might have grown up in a Christian family or went to a Christian school or perhaps you've got some close friends who are Christians. But others would say, know him. What do you mean, do I know the Lord? Of course I know the Lord. Knowing the Lord has transformed my entire life. That kind of knowing that just doesn't really cut it. By truly knowing the Lord, will transform your entire life. That's the big idea for this section of Exodus. Truly knowing the Lord will transform your entire life. So first, let's look at chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, where Moses asks the Lord, what's with letting things go from bad to worse for your people? Why did you do that, God? Let's look. Uh, You remember last week in chapter 5, verses 1 to 21, uh, Moses and Aaron returned to Egypt uh, and they did the right thing, right? They went to Pharaoh and they told Pharaoh exactly what the Lord had commanded them. Uh, And yet things went from bad to worse for God's people. Uh, So in verse 22, the Lord, uh, Moses returns to the Lord uh, and he says, why, Lord? You might pick up there that, that again, Moses is referring to the Lord, not uh, by the personal name Yahweh, that, that's in our English Bibles as small caps Lord, uh, but by the, the much more generic term Adonai. That's capital L-O-R-D. Right, Moses is a little bit frustrated with the Lord, exasperated, right, thoroughly confused about what he's doing. Uh, so he says to him, why, Lord? Why have you brought trouble on this people? Literally, why have you brought evil on this people? Why have you allowed things to go from bad to worse, God? 
Surely this isn't why you sent me, Moses says. But, verse 23, ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble on this people. And you have not rescued your people at all. You see what Moses is saying? He's saying, let's get this straight. I did the right thing here. And yet not only have you not rescued your people, you've allowed things to go from bad to worse for them. But you've brought trouble on your people. What's with that, God? But Moses is really calling into question God's character here, God's God's faithfulness. He's saying to God, God, how am I supposed to trust you if you don't even do what you say you're going to do? You you said you'd rescue us and you haven't. And of course, I'm sure all of us can kind of empathise with Moses. Maybe you've been in his place before. Just being confused about what God's doing feeling like it's all his fault. But also in Exodus chapter 5, we get a real window into the sinfulness of the human heart. When things are going wrong in life, all of us tend to to want to point the finger of blame at someone else. Last week, Pharaoh blamed the Israelites. You remember, he said, you're just lazy. And the Israelites blamed Moses and Aaron, saying, well, things have only gone bad since you guys turned up. And now Moses is blaming the Lord. It's all your fault, God, Moses is saying. Why did you let things go from bad to worse for your people? So in chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, the Lord answers Moses' question. And he says to him, I let things go from bad to worse so that you and the Israelites might know that I am the Lord. I take a look at Exodus 6, verse 1. The Lord says to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. But the Lord, as the sovereign ruler over all of history, has determined that now is just the right time for him to act. Uh, Moses and Aaron have acted, the Israelites have acted, Pharaoh has acted. Now is the time for the Lord to act. And he says that when he acts by the power of his mighty hand, which is obviously just a picture, you might say an anthropomorphism, right? it's just a picture, God doesn't literally have hands, Uh, but when God acts by the power of his mighty hands, uh, Pharaoh uh, won't just let Israel go, uh, he'll drive them out of his country. And then in verses 2 to 5, the Lord repeats a whole bunch of stuff that he's already said to Moses, but particularly at the burning bush in Exodus 3. It's like he's saying to Moses, you know, let's try this again, Moses. This time, listen a bit more carefully. So in verse 3, he reminds Moses that he is the Lord, the Lord who appeared to the patriarchs, that is, to the fathers of the Jewish faith. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you look at verse 4, you see that he didn't just appear to the patriarchs. He established his covenant with the patriarchs, or particularly, at least initially, with Abraham, or with those promises he made in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. You might remember those promises from when we were looking at Exodus chapter 1, that the Lord promised Abraham land, offspring, and blessing, lob, 
Right? He promised Abraham land, and that is uh, that his people wouldn't live in the land of Egypt, uh, but in the land of Canaan, uh, the land that's mentioned in verses 4 and 8. Uh, the Lord promised Abraham offspring, uh, that he would multiply Abraham's descendants so greatly uh, that they would become a great nation. Uh, that's a promise that, that we've largely seen fulfilled in Exodus chapters 1 to 4. Uh, and the Lord promised his people blessing. The blessing, not just of knowing and loving the Lord, but of being known and loved by the Lord. That's the heart of this blessing that the Lord promises his people. So God reminds Moses that he is the Lord who made these binding promises to the patriarchs. And then in verse 5, he says, I fully intend to keep those promises. I'm going to be faithful to them, God says. Uh, because I've heard the cries of my people and I've remembered my covenant with them. Oh, which is not to say that the God's forgetful, you know, that somehow these promises had slipped his mind for a few hundred years. It's to say that he's, he's calling these promises to mind and he's about to act to fulfill them uh, in a new and glorious way. So to summarise, in verses 2 to 5, the Lord calls Moses to look back. To remember uh, that, this, uh, that what's about to happen uh, is really just the next chapter in the story of his promises to his people. Uh, having said that, there is something new in this chapter, isn't there? Uh, take a look at verse 3. Uh, the Lord says there, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob uh, as God Almighty, uh, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known. To them. So God seems to be saying that in the past he revealed himself to the patriarchs in much more generic terms, simply as God or, or God Almighty. But now he's revealed himself in a much more personal way, right? with the personal name, the Lord, Yahweh. And now, of course, the problem with that is that all through the book of Genesis, God is referred to as the Lord. There's 11 times in Genesis chapter 2 alone. You can look them up. In Genesis 15, God appears to Abraham as the Lord. So what do we do with this? Well, I think what God's saying here is not that the name the Lord had never been heard of before or that it had never been known before. It's what the NIV says here. It's that the name the Lord had not been fully known. It hadn't been fully known because God hadn't acted yet to fulfill his promises to Abraham. So as God's about to act to fulfill those promises to Abraham in a new and glorious way, he's going to give his name, the Lord, a whole lot more depth and meaning and significance for his people. Right? His people have known that he is the Lord. I am who I am. He will be who he will be. And as that Lord, he will do what he will do. But what's he going to do? Well, that's what uh, the Lord tells Moses in verses 6 to 8. See, he tells Moses uh, to look forward. Look at verse 6. The Lord says, I am the Lord. Again, he reminds Moses of that. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. 
Oh, so in three different ways, the Lord says, I'm going to redeem my people from Egypt. I will bring them out. I will free them. I will redeem them with an outstretched arm. I will redeem them from slavery in Egypt. Oh, but the Lord says, oh, I'm not just going to redeem you from something. I'm going to redeem you for something, right? For a relationship with me. Oh, this is verses 7 and 8. Right, the Lord says there, I will take you as my own people. And I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Verse 8. And I will bring you to the land that I promised with uplifted hand. This is an oath from God. With uplifted hand I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob that I will give this, so I will give this land to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Now, take a look again at verses 6 to 8 and notice all the things that the Lord promises to do in those verses. This is what he will do. This is the verbs. Look at the action words there. The Lord says, I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own people, he says. I will bring you to the land that I've promised you. I will give that land to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Right? This is everything that the Lord will do. What are Moses and the Israelites going to do? How are they going to contribute to this situation? Well, verse 7, they will simply know that he is the Lord their God. But the Lord their God, who by the power of his mighty hand has redeemed them from their slavery in Egypt and has redeemed them for a relationship with him. So Moses says to the Lord, uh, why did you let things go from bad to worse for your people? Uh, and the Lord says, uh, so that you and the Israelites would truly know that I am the Lord. Uh, of course, verses 9 to 12 show us that, that Moses and the Israelites really need the Lord to, to reveal himself to them uh, in this new and fresh way. Because even though they might know the Lord, they don't really know him, at least not in a way that actually transforms how they see their circumstances. In verse 9, Moses reports to the Israelites everything that the Lord has just told him, but the Israelites don't listen to him. They're just too discouraged by their suffering. Can you imagine their situation? That they got their hopes up a bit when Moses and Aaron returned to Egypt, uh, but they're not. They, they decided they're just not falling for that again. This is kind of expectation management. You know how we get a bit self-protective. You know, if you have your expectations low, uh, then maybe you won't get hurt as much. That's the Israelites here. Sure, maybe the Lord could do something to help them, uh, but what reason do they have for believing that He will do something to help them? Now, the Israelites might know the Lord, uh, but not to, to the depth that actually transforms how they see their circumstances. Likewise for Moses. You know, in verse 10, that the Lord says to Moses, go and speak to Pharaoh again. And in verses 11 and 12, uh, Moses says, what's the point? If my own people don't listen to me, what hope have I got of Pharaoh listening to me? Have you forgotten, God, that, that I've got these faltering lips? I just don't speak well. Yeah, well, we might be tempted to, to look at Moses here and think he's really quite humble. He's a man who's really aware of his weaknesses, his limitations. 
things. And maybe there's some truth in that, but, but I'm not convinced. You remember back in chapter 4 that the Lord did address this whole issue of Moses' speech, right along with all Moses' other objections. But Moses continues to be kind of consumed with himself. Right? All he can proudly think about are, are his own weaknesses and limitations, uh, rather than humbly depending on God uh, and his power and glory uh, and sufficiency. Right? Moses and the Israelites show that they really don't know the Lord. So what do we know? Well, we know that the Lord is about to act so that Moses and the Israelites would know that he's the Lord. Right? He's going to redeem them from their slavery in Egypt for a relationship with him. And he's going to bring about that redemption through Moses, right? despite all his weaknesses and limitations. And so far in Exodus, we've already heard quite a bit about Moses, haven't we? We heard about his birth, we heard about his calling, his preparation for ministry. But what about Aaron? Right, the guy who's going to help Moses in this ministry. Well, that's where I think this genealogy comes in, in verses 13 to 27. We read this and we're kind of like, oh, that's so annoying to put that random list of names and disrupt the story. Right, but it's not actually a random list of names. It's put here to show us why Aaron is a suitable assistant to Moses in this great work of redeeming God's people from Egypt. Well, I'll show you what I mean. This is kind of a carefully crafted uh, genealogy. Take a look first uh, uh, at the start and end of it in, verses in verse 13 uh, and verses 26 and 27. Uh, you'll see there that the Lord reminds us that he's going to redeem his people from Egypt uh, through Moses and Aaron. Uh, but look in verses 26 and 27. It's Aaron who is listed first. That's strange. We always think, oh, it's Moses and, uh, and his kind of sidekick Aaron. Uh, but here we've got Aaron and Moses. Well, there's a bit of a focus here on Aaron. And then if you look in verses 14 to 16, you see that there's a special focus on Aaron's tribe, the, the tribe of Levi. You might remember that at the start of Exodus, we got a full list of Jacob's sons, all of them. Uh, but here we just get Reuben and Simeon and then Levi. Well, that's because Aaron's born into the tribe of Levi, right? Reuben and Simeon are just kind of stepping stones to get to the real point, which is which tribe was Aaron born into? And then there's a special focus on Levi in the sense that he's the only one that we're told lived for 137 years. Well, we don't know how long any of the others lived. And then in verses 16 to 19, we see that Levi had three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, uh, but there's this special focus in verse 18 on Aaron's grandfather, Kohath. Once again, he's the only one that we're told lived for 133 years. In verses 20 to 22, uh, all Kohath's sons are listed, but there's a special focus on Aaron's father, Amram. And we're told that he lived for 137 years. And then Moses, of course, is mentioned in passing as one of Amran's sons in verse 20. But in verses 23 to 25, it's Aaron's descendants who are listed in more detail. The only women mentioned in this genealogy are connected to Aaron. Aaron's mother, Jochebed, in verse 20, and his wife, Elisheba, in verse 23. 
This genealogy has a special focus on Aaron because the purpose of the genealogy is to establish Aaron's credibility as a true Israelite. Right? This guy is the real deal. Uh, so he's worthy of being Moses' assistant. He's worthy of speaking the very words of God on Moses' behalf. Right? Something that he's about to do all the more from the very next passage. So that's that genealogy. Why did the Lord let things go from bad to worse for his people? First, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, so that Moses and the Israelites would truly know that he's the Lord. Uh, And second, chapter 6, verse 28, uh, to chapter 7, verse 7, uh, so that Pharaoh and the Egyptians might know that he's the Lord. From chapter 6, verse 28 to chapter 7, verse 2, we see that the Lord will give Moses the words to speak and he'll give Aaron the mouth to speak them. Chapter 6, verses 28 to 30, it's really just a replay of verses 10 to 12. Moses, again, he's feeling insecure about his faltering lips. So the Lord reminds Moses very patiently in chapter 7, verse 1, that he has made Moses like God to Pharaoh. Like God to Pharaoh. That might remind you of chapter 4, verse 16, where the Lord said that he was going to make Moses like God to Aaron. The point in both verses is the same. Right? Moses is going to receive the very words of the Lord, and Aaron is going to speak those words to others, to the Israelites, in this case to Pharaoh. Which is why the Lord reminds Moses that Aaron, his brother, will be his prophet. Right, it's Aaron who, who will actually speak the very words of God to Pharaoh. But the Lord promises that he will give Moses the words to speak and he'll give Aaron the mouth to speak them. And that, that's Moses' faltering lips. Uh, in verses 3 and 4, though, uh, we see Pharaoh's hard heart. The Lord will harden Pharaoh's heart. Look at verse 3. Uh, The Lord says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Uh, And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. But the Lord reiterates his warning uh, of chapter 3, verse 19, chapter 4, verse 21. And no no matter what Moses says, um, Aaron says, and no matter how how much he multiplies his signs and wonders in Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to them. He'll stubbornly resist because the Lord will harden his heart. Why would the Lord do that? Well, it's because he wants to put on display his power so that everyone knows he's the Lord. Look at verse 4. The Lord says in verse 4, Then, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart, then, once I've hardened his heart and it's clear that he will not let my people go, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. God wants it to be abundantly clear that his people come out of Egypt by the power of his mighty hand. Because the result he's after is in verse 5. The Egyptians then will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. 
in all the plagues that are going to follow, in bringing his people out of Egypt, the Lord is putting on display the power of his mighty hand uh, so that absolutely everyone knows who is the Lord. Everyone knows that he is the Lord. Pharaoh's mocking question of chapter 5, verse 2, who's the Lord? I don't even know him. That question will be fully and finally answered. Everyone will know who's the Lord. Uh, Moses and the Israelites and even some of the Egyptians will know that he's the Lord uh, because by the power of his mighty hand, he's redeemed them from Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians will know that he's the Lord uh, because by the power of his mighty hand, he's judged them in Egypt. God's whole purpose in this section uh, is that people might know that he is the Lord. I wonder if you know the Lord. Do you truly know the Lord? In this passage, it's clear that the Lord wants his people to know him as the one who's redeemed them from slavery for a relationship with him. I wonder if you know the Lord as the one who's redeemed you from slavery. Of course, we all struggle with this, but because we like to think of ourselves as free and completely autonomous individuals. You know, where we're not serving anyone, where we're certainly not enslaved to anyone. But if you think about it, I'm just not sure that that's true. We've seen in this passage that the Lord is the one who repeatedly makes promises to his people. He's always saying, I will, I will, I will. In contrast, pharaohs are constantly making demands, saying, you must, you must, you must. In that sense, I reckon all of us know what it's like to be slaving away under the oppressive burden of our own little pharaohs. Our pharaohs who repeatedly make demands of us, who are constantly saying, you must, you must, you must. And maybe it's the Pharaoh of approval. Approval says to you, you must do this. Right? Do whatever it takes to get the approval of others. Because if you don't, well, if you don't, you'll be alone and rejected and no one's going to like you. So give yourself to serving me, to, to uh, being enslaved to me. Because having the approval of everyone is the key to life and freedom and purpose, you see. Others give themselves to the Pharaoh of money because money says you you must do whatever it takes to get some of me and more of me because let's face it, any real sense of security and status and influence in the world comes from me. So you give yourself to the Pharaoh of money. For others, it's the Pharaoh of food. I often feel food saying to me, comfort food's a classic for me. To to maintain and maximise your comfort, Aaron, you've got to eat these particular foods. You must eat them. For others, food says it's about control. To maintain and maximise your control in life, you've got to not eat these particular foods. Or maybe not eat at all. So you find yourself enslaved to the little pharaoh of food. All of us know what this is like. 
We've all got our own little pharaohs that we're enslaved to, constantly trying to meet their demands, their you must, you must, you must, uh, until we reach the point like the Israelites where we realise it's hopeless, and where we realise there's no way we can possibly meet their demands, and even if we could meet their demands, they wouldn't deliver on what they promised anyway. So maybe we resign ourselves that we're going to be enslaved forever. But we don't have to do that. Right? Because even though we can't redeem ourselves, the wonderful news of this passage is that the Lord can redeem us by the power of his mighty hand. Right? Just as Israel's only hope was that the Lord would redeem them by the power of his mighty hand through the blood of the Passover lamb, so also our only hope is that the Lord would redeem us through the power of his mighty hand by the blood of the ultimate Passover lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed on the cross in our place, and in so doing, liberating us, freeing us, redeeming us from our slavery to every little pharaoh that brings emptiness and destruction to our lives. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, Peter can say, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life that was handed down to you from your ancestors, but, he says, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb, he says, a Passover lamb, without blemish or defect. I wonder if you know the Lord as the only one who could redeem you from your slavery to sin. If you know the Lord like that, it really will transform your life, your entire life. I'll give you just four examples. I reckon if you know the Lord like that, it will make you a whole lot more thankful. Uh, let's say you're working away on a task and someone comes along and they give you a hand. Uh, once you've finished the task, you probably say to them something like, thanks for your help. But what about if you're working away on the task and someone else comes along and they end up doing a whole lot more than you? You're probably more likely to say, thanks, oh, I just couldn't have done it without you. Let's say that there's a task that you know you have to do but you just can't do it. You just never get started with doing it. Someone else does all of it for you. You probably say to them, oh, how can I possibly repay you? You're just overflowing with thankfulness. Right? That's what it's like when you become a Christian. There's no way where we could redeem ourselves from our slavery, completely and utterly hopeless. And yet the Lord does all of it through Christ his Son. And so we're overflowing with thankfulness. How could we possibly repay him? Now, that's why one of the key marks of Christians in the New Testament is thankfulness. But also humility. Because we know that there's, no, there's nothing we could do to clean ourselves up, to, to get ourselves out of our mess. As the hymn, Rock of Ages, says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked, I come to you for dress. Helpless, I look to you for grace. Stained by sin, uh, to you I cry. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. But if you see yourself like that before God, apart from Jesus, it'll be pretty hard for you to kind of have tickets on yourself, to, to be proud. You'll grow over time 
in humility. But you also grow in confidence. Because you'll know that that before you ever knew and loved the Lord, the Lord knew and loved you. And because he'd set his affection upon you, he determined that you were worth the precious blood of his son being shed on the cross to redeem you from your slavery to sin for a relationship with him. He wanted to have you as his own, his treasured possession. If you know the Lord like that, if you contemplate that, it'll not only make you humble, it'll make you deeply confident and secure in who you are. Thankfulness, humility, confidence are also a kind of radical servant-heartedness. If you're sitting there saying to yourself, the Lord has redeemed me by the precious blood of his son, how can I possibly repay him? Of course, the answer is you can't. But you do have to remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20. He says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Of course, the context in 1 Corinthians 6 is to do with honouring God sexually. But the point's much broader. The point is that if you understand that you were bought out of slavery to sin, the empty life that you used to live by the precious blood of Jesus, you'll also understand that from now on, your life does not belong to you. It is not your own. Uh, And so your whole life is radically reoriented uh, from uh, serving and honouring yourself to serving and honouring your Lord. I wonder if you truly know the Lord. Not just knowing who he is, not, not, not just knowing some stuff about him. But knowing him as your Lord, the one who redeemed you from slavery to sin for a relationship with him. If you know the Lord like that, it will transform your entire life. Please pray with me. Our gracious Father, we thank you that you want us to know you. We thank you that you sent your Son, who by his precious blood redeemed us from slavery to sin for a relationship with you. I pray, Father, that each one this day, whether for the first time or or the thousandth time, uh, would recommit themselves to knowing you. Uh, And in so doing, Father, I pray that you would transform our entire lives uh, for your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen.